Good morning, Grace. Good to see you all here this morning. Before we dive into our message this morning, I just want to take a minute and just thank this congregation. Now, many of you know that our family's going through a challenging time right now, and I want to thank you for being there to bear our burdens with us. I know you all have burdens of your own, some of them very deep. And I'm also aware that our burden is not just something that you're bearing with us, but for some of you, is a burden for you very directly as well. And I want to thank you. We've been wonderfully cared for, loved, supported, prayed for, which is by far the most important thing. And I'm deeply grateful for this. I was so struck by the song we were just singing, the line, in all praise to him there in the last stanza, to you the triune God we raise. With loving hearts, our song of praise. I was struck as we sang that, that it, it wasn't our songs, plural, of praise. It was our song of praise. We have one song that we're singing together. And we praise together, but we also hurt together. We lament together. We grieve together. We weep together. That's what body life is all about. And I've been able to be there for many of you as you have gone through deep waters. And there have been many times, including this time, that you're going through these with us. And we're very thankful for that. And I encourage you to just keep caring for one another in all of the things God brings our way. I've also learned in my life that when I go through a hard time, I need to take the time I need to grieve well and to cry well and to... Uh, reflect, but I also need to do whatever I can to keep moving forward and trusting the God who I've been singing the song, he holds the, uh, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the little, little bitty babies. He's got everything. He's got the whole world in his hands. And I've never been more thankful for God's everywhere present loving care. That is always true of him before we go through trials, during trials, after we're through them, and one day everything will be, be made perfectly right, and we're trusting those promises. Um, and so uh, I've, I've learned that God's providence is something I need to pay attention to, and although sometimes we need time away, sometimes it's exactly what God's put on our calendar that we need in that trial. And that's especially true, I think, of it. That means serving people and getting into his word. And I'm on the schedule to preach this morning and for the next two weeks. And that's what I plan to do. And I am looking forward to what God has for all of us in this time. Well, let me pray. Lord, we're grateful for your amazing grace. We're grateful for your presence that is always there as our good and perfect and wise and compassionate and powerful loving Father. Father, we're grateful for the way that you care for us in our heartache. You care for us in whatever comes our way. Lord, as I look out on this congregation, I'm reminded of so many trials through the years, and I'm reminded of your faithfulness in the midst of all of those trials. And Lord, we trust you. We trust your grace. We trust your power. We trust your knowledge. 
And we're thankful for your care for us as your children. And we pray that we would glorify you no matter what is on our calendars or in our hearts or no matter what is filling our days. Lord, I'm so thankful for this church family. I'm grateful for the way through the years uh, we've truly been a family. And we pray for your sustaining grace and your powerful rescue and for hearts of gratitude and joy even uh, when our hearts are groaning. We're grateful that that's the way you work and we pray that we would rest in your sovereign goodness and we pray now you would empower the preaching of your word by the Spirit's work to give us what we need for today and for perspective on our daily lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've begun a series that Doug Axe beautifully kicked off for us last week, answering the question that David asks in Psalm 8, what is man? That's a generic term the Bible uses that can also be specific for, for males, but it's what is, what is a human being? What, what are human beings that you care for us, David asks, and the son of man that you care for? Why do you even pay attention to us when we are so frail and so from dust? And God knows that about us, and he loves us. And this question of what is a human being is incredibly important. Do you realize all the implications of the answer to the question, what is a human being? Who are, you, are we? And from that, what is our purpose? Just think about it. Politics, our sexuality, our understanding of race and culture, our view of sports and food and marriage and economics and parenting and international relations and immigration and abortion and disabilities and the environment and anything else you can name will be affected by how you answer the question, who are we? What is a human being? This has been a complex year for us, hasn't it? So many issues that we thought we had better answers to than we actually did when crisis comes and pandemics arise and racial conflict and political turmoil and differences of opinion and judgment calls that have to be made on all of these things as the church. And we need wisdom desperately. But wisdom flows from understanding God's word and God's truth, especially about the big and most important questions of life. And we can only discover the answer to the questions of our daily lives when we know the answers to the biggest questions of life, like who is God and who are we and what does it mean to have relationship with him? And mere empty rhetoric won't do the trick, will it? I've had 27 jobs in my life some of them very difficult. I was a commercial diver. I played professional football. I painted. I mowed lawns. I worked at Wendy's. I've had lots of jobs. 27. There are about 27 I'd still like to have. But the hardest job I had by far was teaching seventh grade social studies. <laughs> Nothing comes close. I was a permanent sub just for three months until they found a permanent replacement who was actually qualified to do that. 
I taught seventh grade social studies, and one of my jobs at John Winthrop Junior High School to teach seventh grade social studies was to teach a section in social studies called life skills. And as I looked over the materials they gave me to teach this, it was basic values that we're supposed to as public school teachers to teach the kids, you know, be honest, be kind, be respectful, be a good person, don't be a racist, be tolerant. And it was astounding to me because these were all good things that I wanted kids to learn. But I, I, it became a, a, aware to me that apparently there was this void of basic values. Apparently the public school system came to the conclusion that parents and churches weren't teaching these things anymore, so they needed to take it over, which I think was a bad idea. Because here's why I say that. I looked through the materials they gave me to teach kids to be good people, and the central doctrine was feel good about yourself. If we could just get these kids that have positive self-esteem, then they wouldn't be racist, and they, they wouldn't be hateful, and they wouldn't be so messed up with their body image and their self-harm and the things they do to each other and to themselves. If we could just get them to feel good about themselves, everything would be fine. And you know what? I agreed with these values, and I agreed to some degree with that conclusion, but here was the problem. As I looked through the curriculum, I could not find one good reason for any of this. None. None. Just slogans like, you're special. Empty rhetoric like, feel good about yourself and be kind. And by that time, I knew kids pretty well and they're pretty sharp and they think about stuff. And if you tell them you're special, they're going to want to know why you say that. They're going to want to know what your reasons for that is. If there's anything substantive underneath that empty rhetoric. Because if not, if you don't give them any real compelling reason to feel good about themselves and to treat others with respect, they won't do either. And so, I just taught them Christian theology. They were desperate for teachers. I don't think they really cared what I taught them as long as the kids weren't losing it and running out of the room and I was giving them time to find a permanent teacher. I, I taught Christian, I taught them what I believed as a Christian a human being was. And that was the basis for all the life skills and values they were supposed to be absorbing. And I think God used those three months powerfully. It was only a few weeks of that three months where I taught life skills to them. But it was quite a lesson to me. I saw that so much of what we think in our society is borrowed on a surface level from a biblical worldview but if you don't actually have the biblical worldview at the core of your definitions of things like what a human being is, it's just empty words. No wonder we have all the problems we do. Because we so often lack the actual core definition, not just even mentally and verbally and intellectually and in our doctrinal statements, but what does it take? It takes absorbing it into your soul where we really believe what God says. So, let's learn some life skills together. But grounded in God's word. Our anchor passage for this series 
is from Genesis 1. And before we go to the anchor passage, I want to go to the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, if you have your Bibles, it'd be good to go there. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think if we could just get Genesis 1-1 down, everything else would fall into place. God would be the creator upon whom we are completely dependent for everything we are and everything we have. He would be God, and we would be utterly dependent on him, but our lives would also be filled with profound meaning and significance because a perfect, all-wise, all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful God made us. And that gives us an understanding of who God is, but it also gives us an understanding of who we are, created by God. And we realize in the Bible that knowing God as creator means we have purpose to our lives, utter dependence on God for our lives. We answer to him for our lives, and our lives should be flooded with, with worship for this one true God. Read through your Bible sometimes and see how often God as creator is linked to the worship of this creator. Nehemiah 9. Arise and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. And what's the basis for that conclusion and that praise? You made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly hosts bow down before you. When we consider God as creator, Worship should flow from our hearts for everything he's made and everything he sustains ever since he made it. And this is true of us. The Bible says, you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. When we think of God as creator in us as the created, worship should flow from our hearts. One of the main reasons God is distinguished from mere idols and false gods in the Bible is because God made everything. First Chronicles 16, 26. For the, all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. He even made the stuff we make idols out of. We need to realize that Jesus is the creator. He's not just a wise sage and a teacher who taught us how to live. He's creator God. So when we say we follow Jesus, we're not just following an ethical pattern of life. We are following the one who made the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1.16. By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. That's who Jesus is. And now we go to our anchor passage in Genesis 1, 26. Listen to what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This creation narrative regarding human beings and who we are is repeated again in Genesis 5. And in verse 1 it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Do you see how much this is emphasizing who we are as human beings made in God's image and likeness? I don't think we should make much of a deal out of the difference between those two Hebrew words, image and likeness. I think it's coming at the same idea, just from different directions, emphasizing that we are like God, and in that likeness, we represent him. There's a simplicity to this definition I would love for you to appreciate. Let's not make it more complicated than it is. Let's let it be as comprehensive as it really is. God created us in his image and likeness. First thing I want you to notice about that definition is to say we're like God is at the same time saying we're not God. And I want to make this very important point before we dive into the meaning of this idea of being made in God's image. The first thing we need to realize is we're not God. I hear people use Christian theology language like image of God, children of God, those sorts of things, and they tuck that theological football under their arm and they run to human deification with it. Morgan Freeman's one of my favorite actors. I just watched Glory with him last night. It's a great movie with our kids. It was so good to watch. And, And Morgan Freeman said one time, He was asked, do you believe there's a God? And he said, yes. It's funny, he's played God several times. But um, he said, yes. And then he said, and I am he. And the person sort of chuckled, and he was serious. And he said, and and so are you, and so are you. God's in all of us. And he had this pantheistic, that God is is in everything sort of view of humans. And and that's not what we mean by being made in God's image. What we mean is we're like God, but we're not God. Let's not run to human deification with this. And we do this often in efforts to encourage people. Has anyone ever said to you, you can do anything you set your mind to? I know they're well-intentioned when they say that. But what you should say to them is, excuse me, but that's blasphemy. Who can do anything he sets his mind to? God. Who else? No one. We talk to each other in efforts to encourage one another as if we're God sometimes. And we need to be very careful that we understand the limitation in this definition before we understand the amplification. To say we're like God is to say we're not God, but it's also to say we're more like God than anything else in all of creation. Anything else in all of reality, nothing is more like God than human beings. Nothing else in the Bible is described just this way. Oh, the heavens declare the glory of God. We see an image of God everywhere we turn, but there is nothing called the image and likeness of God but human beings. And so, yes, we appreciate the limitation of this definition, but we understand the amplification of it as well. It is an awesome thing to be a human being. The Lego movie is right. Everything is awesome, especially humans. There's an awesomeness to everything God's made. 
and most of all human beings. And I want to say this with that limitation in place that you're not God, but you are awesome. God has made you like himself in astounding ways that leads the psalmist to say, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. In other words, when I look in the mirror, I go, not for the reason you do sometimes, but because he looks in the mirror and he says, I am awesome and awesomely made with that humbling limitation we started with, but let's not miss the amplification of it. I mean, just ponder a human hand for a while. Just ponder the human makeup and the human mind and the human complex emotions we have and the human soul and our ability to pray. And I could go on all day about these unique attributes of human beings that would cause us to worship God all day. God is awesome and so are those who are made in his image and likeness. And we need to take this to heart and let this affect every bit of our lives. And we will never do that if we continue to define ourselves by superficial realities. If we continue to define ourselves by how many likes we get, or followers, or clicks, or affirmation, or approval, or that we match up to the current culture's conception of what cool is, or loved means. We've got to define ourselves by who God says we are in our essence, not by anything that Hollywood and Madison Avenue puts priorities on. This needs to take root deeply in our souls. Deeply, and it's a lifetime endeavor. We will spend our lives trying to get these things right. The process never ends. I teach these things all the time. I teach theology. I teach Christian doctrine. One of the main doctrines I teach is this one, the doctrine of human beings. But it's still a daily battle for me to internalize these things that I teach and know so well. I'm grateful that God has deepened them in my heart throughout my life, but it's still a daily battle, isn't it? I remember I was teaching these things not long after we moved here, and I, I, I said, when we got here, I said, Donna, let's get to know our neighbors as, as quickly and as well as we can. Tell them about Jesus. Enjoy, enjoy our, our great community God's given us here, and we did that. And I remember one day I was out for a run not long after that, and one of my neighbors came around the corner and we'd gotten to know them pretty well, and our hearts were really knitted to them, and we, we really enjoyed them. And he came around the corner, and when he came around the corner, I waved, and then he drove out of sight. And, and I realized that when I saw my neighbor coming, I started running faster than I had been running. And then when he was out of sight, I resumed my same slow, plodding pace that I had been running. And I, I became aware, I think the Lord just made me aware of that, and I thought, what was that about? Well, you know what it was about. Because you've done the same thing, maybe not that way, but in different ways. That's why I'm completely comfortable talking to you about this vulnerable thing. You've done the same thing in some ways, right? I thought, what a pitiful response for a theologian to have who's in the middle of teaching on the value of humans being based on being made in God's image and not what the world values. Like how fit I am. 
It's amazing. I said, when are you going to grow up? I said to myself. Well, I'm still at it. I'm still at it. And, and we all are. We're all in this process of believing more and more what God says is true of us based on who he says is true. That's why I love that song. I am who you say I am. Isn't that great worship song? I am, I'm a child of God. I am who you say I am. Not who some abusive parent or mean coach or even friends tell me. I, I'm not who I am when it's good superficial stuff or bad stuff from the world either. I am who God says I am. You are who God says you are. And that needs to be the defining reality of our lives. And that needs to translate into how we view everyone and everything. So let me make some conclusions. And then I'll make a few implications. Conclusion one. From conception to death, in creation, all human beings, all, all, all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, without exception. Two, although human beings reflect the image of God in differing degrees and ways, no one is created in the image of God to a greater or lesser degree. What do I mean by that? We're all equally made in God's image, but right now... In my life, I am not nearly reflecting the image of God in my artistic creative ability as much as Leslie Kehoe or Joyce Weaver. They are excelling well beyond me in my artistic expression, of which I have very little. And I want to applaud that. I want to love that. I want to appreciate that. But it doesn't mean they're more made in the image of God than I am. So we've got to celebrate the differences, some of which because God made us that way and he likes the diversity of expressing his image through humanity. Some of it's because of sin. There are certain expressions shut down in me because I've got sin to work on in my life. But we're all equally made in God's image, so we celebrate the diversity of the expression of that image, but we don't limit the possession of that image to any of those expressions. Three, although distorted after the fall, we're still creating God's image. The fall messes everything up. Our sin distorts the image. It perverts the image. It twists the image. It makes the image harder and harder to see in us, but it's still there. And Jesus' redeeming work is cleaning up, fixing, healing, restoring that image that gets messed up in the fall. It's still there. And that image then that's still there throughout the Bible is the basis for the way we treat each other. It's the basis for the way we view ourselves. Why do I say that? Well, listen to this after the fall passage in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. So here in the old covenant, the capital punishment is instituted for murder. And what's the reason given for this? It's not a social reason. It's not a psychological reason. It's not a criminal reform reason. Any of those things, it's a theological reason. For in the image of God, he made man. In other words, when you destroy the Im a human being, you're destroying the very image of God. And you think, wow, I'm glad I never murdered anyone then. But that's not all that's required. Listen to James 3.8. No human being can tame the tongue. 
It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. Do you hear that? It's not just don't destroy the image of God with murder. It's don't destroy the image of God with your words. Wherever those words are, to tear and curse with our words someone made in the image and likeness of God. What's he saying? He said, please don't think you can gather on a Sunday morning in this parking lot and worship God and take the same mouth that did that and trash and destroy people with your words. Whether those words come out of a mouth or out of a keyboard, it doesn't really matter. We need to use our words to bless, not to curse. Implication number five, the image of God is the foundation for human purpose and meaning and accountability. This is where our meaning comes from. This is where our purpose comes from. And this means we answer to God because we belong to God. If he made us and made us in his image, we belong to him. His image is on us. And then his name is on us as his people. We belong to God. We answer to him. Implication, uh, conclusion six is Jesus shows us ultimately what the image of God looks like. Jesus shows us what the image of God looks like. He's the only human being who, he is fully and completely human, who shows us a perfect human existence unmarred by sin. Which means to be fully human the way God created, it means then therefore you better be a male Jew from Galilee who's a carpenter. Obviously that's not the case. What is it about Jesus that shows us perfect humanity. Because after all, Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What was it about him? It starts with what our lives need to start with in defining our lives, our relationship with God. Jesus had perfect fellowship with his Father. And what that meant was perfect obedience to his father's will, which was selfless expression of love for God and for others. And in that, he perfectly fulfills the intended purpose of our humanity. And when he does that, he's not just our example in all things, as the Bible says, but he's our substitute as well. He perfectly fulfills human existence as it's intended to be. 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. 1 Peter 2, 21, to, him, to this we are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So he is our example of perfect humanity, grounded in his relationship with God, expressed in obedience to the Father's will that shows perfect love. After all, Jesus is the one who said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And then in that, he fulfills the law and he fulfills the purpose of human existence. So we pattern ourselves after Jesus, not just as our example, but as our substitute. Listen to Hebrews 5, 8, 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. 
having been made perfect, having walked the path of his human existence in relationship with his father, in accordance with the scriptures and his father's will, he loves out of that obedience and becomes what we needed him to be for us. And that means we experience true humanity starting with our right relationship with God. And if you've never trusted Jesus, if you, if you never turned from self to Christ, I want to tell you, you'll never know God, but you'll also never know yourself. You'll never become godly, and you won't become the human you're created to be. So I exhort you to turn from sin and self to Jesus and his finished work for you this morning so that you are able to not just find God and know God, but find yourself and know yourself. This also means we experience this reality, but then it means we treat others. We view ourselves and others with profound dignity and value and respect. This is the antidote to racism. I'm not surprised our society is having a very difficult time fighting the evil of racism because they don't start very often. Even sometimes the church doesn't start with the definition of a human that would completely obliterate this from our lives. It, it would obliterate any hatred toward others, any devaluing of anyone based on any demographic issue, any racial issue, any cultural issue, any personality issues, no categories we can apply to people, put them outside of human dignity and value, and then our love. No one. Jesus says, love your enemies those who are opposing you, those who even want to kill you. He says, love them. That's what he was saying when he dies on a cross and speaks of the people who are killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. All human life, all human life is deserving of dignity, value, and respect. All human life. You know, National Public Radio, certainly not operating from a biblical worldview, had an... an uh, uh, interview, a, a story that I heard that was about an article that uh, the headline was Oregon hospitals told not to withhold care for those with disabilities. I thought they needed to be told that. They did. They did. Let me just give you one example. Sarah McSweeney, I'm told, was a vivacious, fun had a great personality woman. She was 40 years old. She had cerebral palsy. She couldn't walk. She couldn't talk. But she loved going to the mall. And everyone who knew her, especially in her group home, loved and enjoyed her. But when she came down with the COVID virus and went to the hospital, they denied her a ventilator. And the reason was low quality of life. Low quality of life. And she died on May 10th, not getting the care that she wanted. The doctors were trying to convince the people in her group home to change her wishes so that they would be legally free from having to care from her. 
And they found out that this was not a rare thing. Listen to this quote from a state senator in Oregon. There's always been a bias against people with disabilities in the healthcare system, and it was largely hidden. The coronavirus made it visible and worse. Selective application of human dignity in this sort of way is a horrific thing. 61 million aborted babies since Roe versus Wade. Of parents who know their child is going to have Down syndrome, 75%, and that's a low estimate, are aborted before they're born. All human beings, all human beings are worthy of profound dignity, value, and respect. This also means our lives have profound significance, profound meaning. If you ever have wondered if your life matters, if you have significance, if your life has any import beyond 78 years and a pension, beyond those who remember you at your memorial service for a little while. If you ever wondered if your life has meaning, actually, if you've never wondered that, you're not human because we want to know desperately that our lives matter, that our lives have significance. No matter how our lives are playing out, our lives have profound significance. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.16. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, just from a superficial standpoint. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul's saying, when I learned to see Jesus completely differently than I had been seeing him, I learned to see everyone completely differently than I had been seeing them. Listen to Augustine. We stand in awe of the ocean, the thunderstorm, the sunset, the mountains, but we pass by a human being without notice. Even though the person is God's most magnificent creation. Oh, I love mountains, and I love waterfalls, and I love the ocean. I go, our family goes to great lengths to experience those things. But there's nothing more beautiful you'll ever see in all of creation than the person sitting next to you. I am now looking at the most beautiful thing in creation as I look at all of you. The most awesome thing in all creation that deserves even laying down our lives to love well. Don and I got to go to Israel back in the 90s. And uh, one of the things I struggle with in my life is um, FOMO, the fear of missing out. I do. I, it's not uncommon for us to be at a, a concert or a sporting event and We've got, you know, mediocre seats, and I watch some rich people leave down front, and I say to Donna, let's go. And she will often say, no, we're fine. These are fine. We don't want to get kicked out again by an usher. Let's just stay here. Come on, it's better. But, but, and I've got a problem with that. But when I went to Israel, I, I had a, a FOMO problem because I, I wanted to experience everything exactly the way I wanted to experience it in these sacred places. And I was looking forward to going to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher for years, for decades. The place where the resurrection and the crucifixion happened that is now covered by a giant uh, uh, cathedral. 
And we arrived that day. And it ended up being nothing what I wanted it to be. It was 114 degrees. We went in and we got there the same time as two tour buses arrived of senior citizens from Miami. And we were shoulder to shoulder, shuffling into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I was really disappointed in this experience. I was expecting an epiphany and a life-changing moment with God. And it was with Harry and Helen. And Harry had the nerve to say, what is this place again, honey? And Helen said, I'm famished. When's lunch? I couldn't take it. I was surrounded by ugly Americans who weren't appreciating this. And I said, I'm leaving. And I said to Nana, I'm leaving. I can't do this. And I left. And I asked the Muslim guy who actually was the caretaker. Imagine that. I, there's a story behind that. But um, when do you open? And he said, 5 a.m. And I said, I'll see you in the morning. And I did. I got up at 4. I walked through Old Town Jerusalem. And I arrived at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as this man was just opening it up. It was me, a monk, and a little old lady. And I said, yes, this is going to be it. And I went and I sat and I read the story of the crucifixion, where it happened. And it was really cool. But the heavens didn't open and it just didn't feel like I thought it would when I was alone finally. Then I went over to where the resurrection happened. I read the resurrection accounts again. It was meaningful, but nothing like I thought. And I thought, I need to get back. Donna's probably worried, which I've said many, many times in my life. And on the way out, I had one of those internal conversations you have with God. And this is how it went. Boy, Eric, you were really ticked off yesterday, weren't you? Yep. You know me, Lord. I, I, wanted, I wanted to experience this place with you. Right. Now, why is that? Because, Lord, this is like the most sacred place in the whole earth. And I wanted to experience it with you. Right. Now tell me why it's the most sacred place on earth. Because it's where Jesus died and rose. Right. And why did he die and rise? Well, to save people. You mean all people? Even those people from Miami that I saw as nothing but a source of hatred yesterday. I, that's not too strong a word. I was despising them for ruining my moment with this place where the events that offer salvation to the world happened. Jesus died for people. It's like a dagger of conviction in my heart. And I thought, you idiot. You, you came to experience a place. And as special as this place may be, it's the people who were in this place that Jesus came to die for, give his life for. And yesterday, they were nothing but an object of hatred for me. I've experienced the same feelings at Disneyland. I have. We've got to go through a transformation in our thinking. 
So our instinct is not, hey, you cut the line, you scum. But hey, you cut the line, you image bearer. And it doesn't mean people aren't annoying, myself included. It doesn't mean people don't hurt us and disappoint us and frustrate us and wound us deeply at times. But here's the question. In the midst of all the mess that our sin has created, can you see through it with God's eyes to the image of God? And everyone, and maybe for you, the hardest person to see as made in God's image and awesome is yourself. And maybe you need to start there and ask God to transform your thinking about yourself. Maybe it's a particular race. Maybe it is. Maybe you've had some bad experiences with, with a, a certain kind of person, a certain kind of personality. Maybe it's someone in your own family who's deeply hurt you. And I'm not saying everything needs to be just fine relationally and we have to act like nothing happened at all. Sin fills our lives with grief and wounds and pain and rebellion. But we need to be able, in the midst of that, to see people, ourselves and everyone you will ever meet, through God's eyes, the way he does, made in his image. And even if they're trying not to reflect it, they can't help it. They're made in his image. And he sent his son to die for human beings made in the image of God. And we as God's people, we have the reasons to love that way. We have the reasons, not just the empty rhetoric that a junior high curriculum gives you, but the reasons to view people based on who God says they are the way he does and then live and love out of that. Oh, I'm looking at your faces and I know so many of you are living this out in self-sacrificial, beautiful, spirit-empowered ways, and I'm deeply grateful. But until we get home, we all have plenty of room to grow in this, so let's depend on Jesus, showing us what it means to be human, being that human for us in his perfect life and sacrificial death and his resurrection. And then let's be the people who are actually living out what we believe how, how, how tragic that at times people live out lives of love and they don't even have reasons for it. But we as God's people do. And we have the spirit to enable us and gospel transformation to bring this about. So let's live lives that look like Jesus, depending on him and following his example every day. Lord, help us to be the people you call us to be. Thank you that we sing a song and we preach the gospel and we believe your word. Lord, I believe every one of us here has room to grow in the way we view ourselves and other people. Lord, we so get immersed in the culture, the values of our culture and not the values of your word. So help us to learn and grow. Lord, show each of us the particular areas or maybe individuals or kinds of people that, that we need to learn and grow in this area. Lord, help us, we pray, to be a people who image you because of your redeeming work through Christ in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.